If your brand is a celebrity, who would you pick? Hey, my name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to get clear on your brand, why it's important to simplify your brand messaging and how to do it, and how to increase your speed to get more things done. Today, I'm joined by Karen Ho, Vice President for Brand and Product Strategy from Bulletproof. Bulletproof is a leading food, beverage, and content company widely known for the popular Bulletproof coffee, collagen, protein product line, and more. And was started in 2012 and based out of Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Karen. Hi. Yeah, so you, we mentioned that you're the Vice President for, for again, Brand and Product Strategy. When did you join Bulletproof? I joined Bulletproof in November of 2015. Got it. And what was your what was your reasoning for joining? What did you see about the company that made you want to to hop on? It was uh, it was really serendipitous, actually. Um, I actually had a former colleague that was at Bulletproof already, who I had uh, some overlap with at my previous employer at Starbucks Coffee Company. Uh, but really what attracted me to the company was uh, its place in the health and wellness space and how provocative of, uh, it was um, and continues to be in thinking about how to approach one's health um, in ways that at that time, not many people were thinking about. And then from a personal perspective, I uh, dabble in CrossFit, have tried to be paleo. And so there, a lot of the concepts around Bulletproof weren't uh, foreign to me. And in fact, the first time I heard about Bulletproof coffee, which I have a very distinct memory of thinking was insane. All I had heard it was butter and coffee um, was at my cross, CrossFit box. So when I was contacted about the opportunity, it just seemed perfect. And I, not, I, I would hesitate. Um, I should also say that it was also perfect because relative to my expertise, my professional expertise, I was really excited to get involved on the product product strategy side of things. Got it. So you you own the product strategy. What is what's involved here? Like what is your your role as the, the owner of the product strategy? Really, my role is to take a look at the entire portfolio, the existing portfolio of the business, and then take a look at the future por- future potential portfolio of the business. Uh, relative to our consumer target and really think about what makes sense for us to continue to grow uh, care and feed, if you will, in terms of the existing business and then what ancillary or adjacencies that we want to go after. Um, and so that role really entails, uh, it's like a sausage making machine. It's really everything from thinking about what that product could be, uh, figuring out how we'd make it, commercializing it, and then marketing it and getting it on shelf, whether it's a virtual shelf or on a grocery shelf. So it's really an end-to-end strategy role, figuring out um, both commercialization aspects and the marketing and go-to-market aspects. Right. So you're Bulletproof, I would you know consider a much more established company than I think a lot of listeners uh, out there that might be starting business of their own or just getting started for the first time. But I think one thing that you have tons of experience with is this this almost like this moving target of again aligning what exists today with the product line that you have and where you want to go but even before then where does it start like where if someone's sitting down and trying to think about 
what should their what is their brand what should their brand be who is their target audience what do you recommend they start i would really start with it really depends on the entrepreneur right but it really starts with what their passion is and what is the problem they're looking to solve um entrepreneurs fundamentally have an idea in their mind that they're really excited about and want to share the world about uh but the where they have to take that next is understanding why they want to pursue that idea and how to get the consumer to understand it. And, um, and that's a really big leap because one, one thing I've noticed a lot of entrepreneurs tend to do is think about uh, a problem in a vacuum, meaning, or maybe not a problem, but an opportunity in a vacuum where they want to come up with a consumer product or uh, a piece of technology and they're solving um, for a certain pain point or need. Uh, and that's something that they feel uh, very palpably. But the leap they have to make is figuring out is what other consumers feel and understanding how can, is this really a market opportunity? And I think it's bridging that gap between their passion of where the idea starts with a true market opportunity is where brands get built. Right. I think that there is this um, kind of mantra about, you know, do what you're passionate about and, and focus on that. And I think that is only, like you're saying, one half of it. The other half is that if you do want to build a business, there needs to be some kind of market out there and you need to be responsible for bridging that gap. So I think a lot of it begins with validating it, that there is this this gap that that you can you can bridge. So what is what what what's your recommendation here on how does a entrepreneur look at their passion and determine if there's a market that is sustainable for a business that they might want to build? Sure. One one place I would start is understanding what that like what that entrepreneur's personal goals are. It's they're entrepreneurs of all types, right? So they're entrepreneurs that want to open uh, a mom and pop shop around the corner. They're the entrepreneurs who want to figure out what the ne next Facebook is going to be. Those are very different aspirations. Now, there's certain fundamentals that no matter what business you're pursuing is absolutely the same, but uh, Figuring that out first and early helps. And granted, that could also change with opportunity, uh, an unexpected opportunity. But understanding what kind of investment you want to make uh, is an important piece of the puzzle because that then drives whether you want to raise outside money or if you want to just raise friends and family or if you want to bootstrap this and grow organically. There's actually no wrong answer uh, in that regard, but it's, it's certainly a step in understanding really what the growth trajectory of the business would be and what the goals are really is it comes down to, um, I think entrepreneurship is a lot like the wild west where a lot of things are not codified. Many things are probably not documented. Um, and I'm making gross generalizations, but, um, so I'm not trying to offend anyone, but it's fly by the seat of your pants. And, but ultimately entrepreneurs do have to decide implicitly or explicitly where, what does going from point A to point B look like? Um, and to me, that is a big step. Um, and the reason why I think that's particularly important is because as we build brands or as entrepreneurs build brands, 
building a brand that is uh, has wide market appeal. So, for example, um, the example I'd like to use uh, because I have some Starbucks heritage, if you will, is the lore when I started at Starbucks was that Howard Schultz, who I believe most people probably know on this podcast, was a black coffee drinker. He drank Americanos. He drank espressos. But he could not possibly fathom someone adulterating coffee with dairy, with flavored syrups. And how could we ever possibly offer the pumpkin spice latte or the frappuccino for that matter? But what he also recognized along the way is that in order to capture a certain market opportunity and grow the business, not offering those things that frankly, he's probably not passionate about would be a mistake if his goal, ultimate goal is to grow the business. And so I know that's a much bigger, a, a much Starbucks is obviously a much bigger enterprise than what a lot of entrepreneurs are dealing with. But I think the principles are more or less the same. So to make sure that you understand the advice that you're giving, you, you mentioned that it depends on the, the entrepreneur, their goals, you know, you'd be trying to build a billion dollar business, billion dollar brand, or maybe you're just trying to build a lifestyle business. So sure. in terms of, you know, a bulletproof, what kind of entrepreneur would enter the game to try to build a brand like bulletproof? Are they someone that's coming in to try to build a billion dollar brand, a lifestyle business somewhere in, in the middle? So the question is really about what type of entrepreneur would succeed or, yeah, what kind of entrepreneur would want to build a business like like Bulletproof? Because I think what you're getting at is that you have to look at your goals and your goal. Depending on your goal, you might not like to own a business like Bulletproof, or you know, depending on your goals, the a business like Bulletproof is exactly what you what you'd need. So I guess it's just based on that 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 context of someone that would run a business like Bulletproof, what kind of goals would they would they have? To run a business like Bulletproof, we have outside money. Um, we have two primary investors. Really, the goal is to grow the business and capture, continue to grow it while being being true to the brand, uh, but increase the market opportunity of the business. And by increase the market opportunity, I mean, I think the market opportunity in health and wellness and CPG in general is massive, but it's about what is the story, what resonates with the consumer, how can we capture more of those consumers who are interested in the products that we have to offer because we know uh, that there's a huge market and we also know that by entering adjacent categories, we can grow that market opportunity. That it is an aggressive plan when you have outside investors, the reality is there are demands to grow the business to make it uh, to head for, theoretically to an attractive liquidity event. That is really when one steps back and thinks about the fundamentals. And th- I feel like this might be stating the obvious for some people, but I often think in the course of day-to-day business, it's forgotten that when you take outside investment, particularly venture capital or private equity dollars, their interest is for you to succeed and be worth a lot of money to them because they have an interest in paying out their investors high returns. And so really when you're in the bulletproof game or in the game of having uh, growing a business to a scale that could qualify for a liquidity event, you are signing up for 
aggressive growth plans, board meetings, board conversations, having a lot of outside input, building teams, big teams to align with those plans and to push those plans forward and a growth trajectory, which frankly would make a lot of people's heads spin. And so I think from the outside perspective, it could seem really attractive or not. I may have made it less attractive in what I've just said, but it is certainly um, not not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. Yeah. Speaking about the growth trajectory, I think, you know, most people listening are looking to grow. You know, some people might want just to maintain the size of their business, but I would assume most people are looking to grow their business. Uh, but if you are taking outside money, you're talking about, again, a growth trajectory that might not be even believable for a lot of people to to get into this. Now, if you do have this growth trajectory that is required to uh, because you took out outside investors, what kind of opportunities do you need to pursue that maybe you don't need to necessarily consider if you are bootstrapping? You know, if you're bootstrapping, you're really constrained by the amount of the, your cash flow and you're, you're constrained by how much you can invest in your team. And uh, when you have outside money, you could take some, what I would call short-term losses to invest in the brand for longer term gains. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. I think it's just, it, and I, I think you have more license to be more aggressive about where you want to go to grow the business and take some risks. Um, now, when you take outside money, you are still, you're, you are spending someone else's money effectively, but they are doing it with the understanding that you're taking risks and making decisions that drive opportunities. When you're bootstrapping, you, your risk profile radically goes down because you just don't want to run out of money. Um, and it's just so fundamentally harder to invest. Um, but the benefit of, there are other benefits to bootstrapping in that even though your growth trajectory might be slower, uh, even though your marketing plans might be less aggressive. You have fundamentally more, and I'm not talking about financial control, although that's true too. You have more control over your business because you have fewer outside parties involved in uh, the day-to-day. Yeah, let's talk about that. I think I think you mentioned that you know continue to grow the the business while being true to the brand earlier. I think you're hinting at the fact that there's a lot of stakeholders that are now involved in, in a lot of definitely big decisions, but maybe also day to day ones like you're mentioning just now. So how do you balance between the the, the stakeholders of the investors, the the internal brand that you guys you know want to put pu- pu- push, and then also what the customers want? Very carefully. And it's, it's a little bit, then analogy I would like to use for that question is it's a lot like, not that I have triplets, but I would imagine it's a lot like parenting triplets and that in the triplets that have, that are all obviously all the same age and have different needs, don't want to dress the same, don't want to eat the same things, have different hobbies and interests. Uh, it's a lot like that in the sense that every party has a different interest and it's really about finding where that common ground, common ground is in the Venn diagram. It's, 
and also finding where that compromise is. You mentioned that you're finding common ground is is that is the approach. Does that could you also take an approach where sometimes someone has to take a sacrifice because you know you like if your parents are triplets, if you're trying to make everyone happy and then no one is happy, is that a potential pitfall of uh, constantly trying to find, I guess, consensus? Yes, absolutely. And that's where I think compromise has to come in or um, one or a party may have to say, listen, this is how we have to do business. What you're asking me is compromising a certain aspect of that business. But yeah, I think that's absolutely true in the sense that um, you beat me to it, but they're decisions, they're easy, very there are decisions I could see being made every single day that compromise the brand and, and the very small ways and some big ways, but it's really all about chasing the opportunity. It's so easy in the context of any business, whether you're publicly traded, whether you're just one person to chase where the dollars are, but in doing so one can often forget what the heritage of your brand is all about and chasing dollars to no end could come at the cost of the integrity of your brand. And so a lot of these conversations with investors and customers and um, with the enterprise itself really often comes down to what does really make sense for the brand and why are they, what are the mandatories of this? Like what is driving uh, certain decisions to make certain considerations mandatory, because I, I think most people would agree. Uh, maybe customers uh, might be slightly different position, but most investors uh, would agree that that a short term gain is for a long term hit is a bad idea. And I, I think you have to really find yourself in a unique juncture to make those kind of decisions. Mm. Are, are there like events or opportunities for you or the organization that the, the team over Bulletproof to st- take a step back and evaluate have the compromises gone too far in one way or the other? Like, How do you make sure you take the time to pull back and evaluate whether we need to rebalance and reshuffle things? That's a great question. Uh, at Bulletproof, we have, I mean, they, it happens two different ways. So we have leadership team meetings and sub meetings with our marketing teams to discuss the division of labor around uh, certain initiatives where it's, it becomes very easy to see where things are evolving um, or certain initiatives or where the focus evolving. We also, um, and I think those meetings become a forcing functions when you're doing uh, things like OKRs, um, objectives and key results, or any kind of goal setting, metric driving, measurement type uh, meeting where you're going over what where we're going next in the next quarter or the next year. A lot of those issues get aired. But I would also say um, those conversations happen organically and frequently. There's just – Bulletproof is moving so fast. It really is like a bullet train. And, and so it doesn't take long for us to organically understand, wow, what are we doing? Does this really make sense? Hold up, time out. Let's talk about this. And, um, and what I would say is that no one is more vocal about that than Dave Asprey himself. 
because he, as the person who founded the brand um, and continues to be very passionate about not only about Bulletproof, but what the brand stands for uh, in, in the place of people's health and wellness and wanting to help as many people as possible, he is particularly passionate of never departing from the core of the brand and fi always finding that right balance. And so it doesn't take a lot to, re to see, to observe and see, wait a second, are we departing from who we really are? Mm. Now, in your role, the decisions that you make on a day-to-day -day basis, ideally, how far ahead do you want those decisions to play out? Like, are you thinking a quarter ahead, a year ahead? Like, how far out do you prefer to think out? Well, my answer is different between my preference and reality. <laughs> let's, let's hear both. I'd love to hear both. <laughs> my preference would be to be a year out, uh, largely because, because I'm responsible for the product development process and the R&D that goes behind it, a lot of that process really requires at least a year uh, from, to make a widget from, from the idea from someone's head and to have it arrive on shelf someplace in the United States takes at least a year in many cases. And so I prefer to plan out a year. Also from a marketing perspective, it helps more lead time is helpful. But in reality, we are planning things sometimes a month ahead, two weeks ahead, six months ahead. It's highly variable. And the reason why it's so variable is that is our channels, our sales channels, we touch every sales channel. We are on Amazon. We have direct to consumer. Uh, we are, we have expanded in food, drug, mass. And so every channel has a different timeline associated with it. And so when it comes to digital channels, we have the luxury of moving relatively fast and quickly and getting things up online very quickly. But when you're talking about traditional CPG channels, that's a whole different game. Um, there's not a lot of us controlling that timeline. In fact, we have zero control. It's really at the whim of the retailers selling windows and their shelf set windows where we can get on shelves. So um, there are many, there are the timelines that we can control internally, but there are also the timelines that, um, that are externally handled by other parties. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's talk about the reality, uh, I guess, answer then. So the, the shorter term decisions that you have to make, I think are just the nature of the, the fast growing business that, that you're in. How do you try to actively shield yourself from these kind of shorter term decisions that you have to make so that you have the headspace to think a year out? Asking a lot of questions. Uh, really, it's about understanding why we'd make a short-term decision. And for me in particular, I, I'm not sure how the other leadership, uh, leader, uh, other VPs would answer this question. Um, but for me, my North Star is really all about the brand and what we stand for and what our goals are uh, that ladder up to staying true to that brand. And so when we make a short-term decision that feels uh, not in alignment with those goals or the brand principles, it's an immediate flag for me. There's no, I mean, there's zero reaction time really. Um, and so I, I don't know that it, there's true insulation in the sense that my role is to 
to argue that actually. And so I think my role is more to insulate that from my team and all those conversations, because like, I think they could be very distracting from the day-to-day objectives of the team. But, uh, but my role is also to, to have those discussions and take them head on to, so that we can understand really what the strategy of the business is. It's really not unlike when you're briefing in a new ag campaign or actually a better analogy is if you're doing a renovation on a house and uh, you're just trying to redo your kitchen and then you say, oh, well, you know, there's a bathroom right there. Can you redo that too? But I want you to do it under the same timeline. Um, and I want you to make it great. It's, you know, it's, there are all these curveballs that when they're short term and short sighted and made and uh, made decisions made at the last minute, uh, they're often not made with a full understanding of how that's going to impact timelines and other what the ripple effect is in the business. So does that mean that you will you you would push back on time constraints on making decisions like we have to make a decision today? Is that ever truly make or break for a business being rushed to a decision? I don't think so. I think it feels me. I think the feeling of it being make or break is confused for being make or break. And I, I would say I'm pretty guilty of this, but there are so many decisions being made every day that you that I am very aware and is along the critical path of making progress the next day. And so in that regard, it feels make or break. But I, I do think perspective on really what the end goal is and taking a step back when these short-term decisions or opportunities occur and there's debate and discussion around what to do, taking a step back and really understanding the goals of the business is really the best filter. Um, now, if a company is in financial distress, I think that's a whole other matter, but I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm just talking about the daily distractions of opportunity that often are, come to businesses organically when they are becoming successful. Yeah, I think that that's an important one where at first the one, nobody wants to talk to you, right? But then once you start getting success, everyone you have a new problem, which is that there are now all these new opportunities presented to you. What is the way that you have taught yourself or your team to filter out the, the noise of new opportunities? Is To filter is, so it really comes down to, it's amazing. I would, I would just take a step back and say, it's amazing the amount of cold calls, cold emails, LinkedIn requests, that I've gotten over the three and a half plus years I've been at Bulletproof is literally has gone from zero to sometimes almost 50 inquiries in a day and not every day, uh, but it has gotten that high before. And what I, and, and I'm not, I'm not the only one that experiences this. Many people experience this. I can't even imagine what Dave Asprey experiences, but, um, but in terms of helping my team understand how to filter I always tell them to use their best judgment, number one, because they have to learn. I can't filter their email box for them or their phone calls. 
there's, I think, a learning curve from a development standpoint to figure out how to filter um, in terms of taking some of these phone calls or emails and seeing where they net out. But really, at the end of the day, it's understanding what where all these opportunities, how these opportunities line up with what their goals are and where the business is headed. And if they have a good understanding of the key strategies of the business and their own strategies of their sub-segment of the business, I, I have confidence that they can navigate the things that really matter from the things that don't. And if they can't, they just can ask. But I, I will say that 90% of the time, it's not a good use of time um, to pursue these opportunities unless really the best filter if someone filtered it already for you. So, for example, if someone from the board of Bulletproof says, hey, I have this really interesting conversation with this media partner, I'm making it up, uh, would you talk to them, hear them out, and maybe you can have them in your Rolodex when the opportunity strikes? A qualified lead is a very, very different game than a cold lead. Right. I think what you're getting at is you want you might be able to just filter by the source of the opportunity to, to some sure. degree. You're not just taking anything and everything from LinkedIn. You're looking for, like you're saying, a qualified source giving you this. So I want to I want to put a pin on talking about onboarding new employees. I think that you might have a lot to say about here. Before we get there, I want to talk about this this skill of you know from from thinking. I think a lot of entrepreneurs they start just by reacting, right? Reacting, reacting. Then they can get some breathing space to think about a day out, then a week out, a month out. And I think this is a vital skill for any entrepreneur that wants to mature their business. So how did you get better at extending, I guess, the timeline of your decisions? I got better at it by what I actually had to improve by joining Bulletproofs is shortening my timeline, actually. So it's I got good at lengthening my timeline or having a long timeline by learning a certain set of fundamentals at Starbucks of how we launch products, how we think through marketing, how we want the brand to show up no matter where it shows up. At Bulletproof, I had to do the inverse, which is how can I do those same things, but in in a fraction of that time? And, and so, and I think, you know, there's obviously more infrastructure at a place like Starbucks. And so I had the, both the luxury of having a longer timeline, but also a fair amount of guardrails around that were imposed from way above my pay grade, as far as how late I could be, how early I could be. Does it really matter in this fiscal year or that fiscal year? How does this drop to the bottom line? Now, at Bulletproof, it's so fast and immediate. And because we have a direct-to-consumer business, it's always go, go, go. And it really, I had to orient myself around, well, what does it take and what do I have to believe to go as fast as possible? And why would I go six months try to achieve this in six months or three months or what is the rationale for doing it uh, and pushing the team to go warp speed. And so um, to evolve the thinking for other entrepreneurs, it's 
uh, it goes back to really goal setting and understanding the implications of if I want to launch a product by it's July now by December, what does it take to get there? And if I miss it, what does that mean for me? Can I still have a business? Will I, does this change my marketing plans? Does it change my relationship with my partners or my employees? Those I think are the considerations. And so I think entrepreneurs are driven by, and depending what channel of business they're in, um, a different timeline, which is sometimes survival when they're getting out of the gate. And sometimes other external factors such as meeting shelf set windows or sell in windows or trying to prove something to an investor or um, trying to build a certain rigor around what the brand is about and the products that line up against it. So unfortunately, it's not a super concrete answer, but it really it, it it's so specific to the actual business itself. But those are the fundamentals I would operate on. Yeah, so so that's that's an interesting point about how once you join a a much uh, faster growing business, you know, moving from Starbucks to a uh, uh, probably a startup more of a startup at that time with Bulletproof, you have to focus more, increasing your speed, which means you know accomplishing more in a tighter time frame than than you might have been used to. And you mentioned that the key here is to ask yourself, what do I need to believe? to actually increase my speed. So where do you go look to establish these beliefs so that you are able to commit to tighter timeframes to, to speed things up? There, um, I look to my network, truly. It really comes down to finding the right experts who know the product categories that you're operating in and looking in your network to understand what's really possible and what's not the real the reality of my role is and i think it's a very healthy chemistry is that dave asprey and i are constantly um debating the timelines and how long it takes to produce something and what it takes to get there and how much rigor it requires um, and there are some things that we will never concede on such as the clean ingredient profile or a high quality of making sure our products are of utmost quality, but understanding we will continue to have debates around how fast we can go. And it really, for me to figure out how fast I can go, I ask myself based on what I know, if I want to produce this thing, XYZ thing in six months, I have to believe all these steps that I know to be true in my work experience has to, has to go a lot faster. And if I were to proportionately take an average timeline and shrink them down, I'd have to believe all these things are true. The next step from there is to figure out and find those people in your network or my network and my team to say, can we do this? And is this actually possible? Because there there are just some aspects of the timeline that that can't be made shorter, and there are and there are aspects that can be made longer. I mean, um, that, that, I say the opposite. There are aspects that can't be controlled, and there are uh, there are aspects that can be controlled. The question is, 
are the controllable ones truly ones that move the needle on the timeline. I got you. So you you look to determine what you need to believe, and then you look to your network. You look for someone that's that's walked that path before, that's done it before, and you consult them to see, hey, is this a realistic timeline? Right. That's exactly right. Got it. Okay. So I want to talk about uh, your role in building a team. So how, how large is the team that that you you have today? So my uh, brand management team is six people today. We have an R and D team that's five people today. And I'm also responsible for the creative team, which is another five people. When I joined Bulletproof, um, I inherited one person. Gotcha. So, so lots of experience here hiring for, for uh, this team. What was important for you? What, I guess what's important for you to, to well, actually before I get there, what, are, what do you look around to determine what roles you need to fill on a team? How do you decide if someone out there is starting to build a team of their own, what should they look to see, okay, I need someone in this spot? Is your question, just to clarify, is your question like literally where they should look in terms of recruiters or like what quality? Oh, no, no, me, me like um, what kind of what kind of questions should they be asking themselves to determine uh, what role they should hire for next? So when I think about the when I step back and think about the way I thought about hiring for Bulletproof back in November of 2015, I thought about really where I was spending most of my time and where I couldn't keep up, and where I and I married that thinking with what I knew were the near-term, near-term, I'm saying maybe a year out, goals of the business were. And so at the time, I knew that we had certain aspirations to launch our ready-to-drink product. And uh, the team that we had in place certainly wasn't going to be sufficient to do that. And so I, I set out to base my hiring plans around figuring out what subject matter expertise did I need? Where was I failing? Uh, because I certainly, I just didn't have the bandwidth and, and then have that line up with a reasonable time frame. Uh, the goals are uh, goals around the business and a reasonable time frame, so that I knew that these roles could have longevity. Hey, Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. Okay, I want to talk about uh, the, your experience at Starbucks. And, you know, you know, Bulletproof already is one of the larger brands we had on the show, but Starbucks is, is a behemoth that a lot of people might not even think about comparing their business to. But what are some of the biggest lessons that entrepreneurs can take from a big brand like Starbucks and apply to their maybe, you know, single employee, maybe small team business? People, I strongly believe that entrepreneurs should think about brands like people. Think about it as when you go to a party, you're going with some friends or your spouse or significant other and you meet a bunch of people and you're having a great time, hopefully, and you're back in the car, you're driving home and you're talking about your experiences and your impressions of people. I think that's a probably a, a very relatable activity that most people experience. That conversation that happens in the car is how entrepreneurs think about brands. Brands are their, their personalities and their, persona their personalities that are described when a person walks out of a room. 
And not only, and then it goes deeper than a personality. It's also the value set, what they look like. So there's superficial things and there are some deeper things, but they really represent an external personality and a value set of that personality. And that is the way brands should be considered in my mind because they, I think they're often thought of as very static and 2D and it's a color or logo or message. It is those things, but really those things are, should be the amplifying the value set or the personality of the brand, not the other way around. So if a brand is getting off the ground, even if it's super rudimentary, it really comes down to, and I think it helps uh, codify this, the goals or the strategy of the business. It really comes down to why is your brand who it is and who do you want it to be? And how do you, how do you want your brand to be described if it were a person? Or another way to do it is to say, if your brand is a celebrity, who would you pick? And, and because that's something I think that's easier to, uh, everyone has um, a relatable celebrity that they might like or not like or someplace in the middle. And starting there can help drive the foundation of how that brand shows up in life. The other, so that's, I think the more, I think that's a very image oriented answer. Mm-hmm. Sorry, real quick question about that. I think uh, what you're getting at too is that the entrepreneur has to really know their brand first. And I feel like it's an almost an uncovering process where you're digging to get more and more clarity around it. For you, what kind of recurring activities do you find helps you get the most clarity about the brand, about who you want you know, the celebrity to be to represent your brand? Really rigorous writing of briefs which I find I know is painful and I have tortured people with this belief, but whenever someone is writing um, a document about, let's say you're working on a package design and you're getting a freelancer to help you with it, or you're working on your first ad campaign and you're working with the agency to, or consultant to help you think through that getting on paper who your consumer is, what your brand is about, how you want your brand to be perceived. Every single time you elicit support or start from the outside or even on the inside, kick off a project is meaningful, is a meaningful uh, process, even though it's rigorous and sometimes painful because it's hard to get words on paper. But that's why it's hard uh, because it is a reminder of, oh, what is our brand about? Uh, I think if it were easy, um, it wouldn't be a difficult problem to solve. But that's how I, that is my method to the madness of reminding people and creating that for, forcing function around what the brand personality is. Because at a certain point, you're working on something that's going to evoke that and to get people on the same page and expect people to have an output that's on the same page as you, that has to be put down in words. Is this, a, is this something that you can uncover as you go along and as you're building your business or do you need to, or do you recommend that people wait and establish this before they ever launch? I think it's both. There is no right, 
there is no right answer, honestly. But I would say if someone is unearthing or embarking on a journey that's a brand new business, these are concepts that are great to have in the back of your mind. There are probably millions of case studies of brands reorienting their brand their brand story over time. So it's not a zero sum game where if you don't nail it on day one, you're screwed for the you know for the rest of the trajectory of your business. That's most certainly not true. And so I um, I don't want to give that anyone that impression. But understanding that there is a certain rigor around what you want your brand to be, and that in the very early stages, in ways that are hard to predict and you can't see, that those early stages are setting foundational concepts and precedents around how your brand shows up over time. And I think that's, I think it's just that I think the awareness is step one. Step two is as a brand grows, is then getting it really on paper, how it is that you want to show up. Right. So this this idea of knowing who your celebrity is, I really do love this. I think that it's it's very visual. So once you've established this and you, you realize who would play your you know uh, play your your brand in a movie, where do you want your team to spend their time to have the biggest impact at making sure that the consumers also see and identify the same celebrity as you? Marrying the consumer target with with the messaging and this is where voice and messaging becomes real uh, truly important so um i'm trying to think of a good example but if your brand's mission is to be mainstream talk about i'm just making it up this has nothing to do with bulletproof is to be mainstream speak to consumers and all the major retailers such as walmart target sam's club you name it and, but your voice is, you, you need an IQ of 200 to understand what someone is saying or be studying for the SAT or something like that. That's not going to work. And I'm using kind of an extreme tongue in cheek example, but it really comes down to if you're trying to evoke a person and your only tools are the words on a page or on a package logo design the the objective really is to how do you make all those pieces work as hard as possible to evoke that person while speaking to your consumer at the same time and in theory the celebrity if we're going down that track should also have some resonance should it line up with who your consumer target is because it wouldn't make any sense to have um, a truly esoteric celebrity than be the celebrity you're using to describe who you want to be and then be super mainstream. Makes sense. So I think you mentioned in our interview about your exposure to surround sound marketing at Starbucks. Is this in line with that? Like what, what, what is surround sound marketing? So when I was at Starbucks, surround sound marketing was all about showing up with consistency in all places. So, um, and I'm dating myself, but back in 2010, we 
had this, uh, like Starbucks would reinvigorate some of the principles around how we think through marketing. And this whole idea of, uh, surrounds our marketing was reincarnated, if you will, in the sense that we want to remind all the partners, which is what we call the employees at Starbucks, that Starbucks shows up in a multitude of places. We show up in the grocery store, we show up in convenience stores, we show up at the cafes, we show up in airports, and we show up online. And an understanding that that surround sound marketing has to be consistent. If we're marketing and doing it well and executing and leveraging all the surround sound that uh, all the channels that Starbucks has to offer, we have absolute consistency in all those channels. There's nothing that creatively looks different. There's nothing, the messaging doesn't look different. The brand is what it is. It is, and consumers can expect that they will get the same thing every time. Yeah, I think you noted too to us that uh, about the importance of simplifying the core brand message. I think that that can only help with surround sound marketing if you simplify it. Are there other benefits here by simplifying the core brand message? I think that this is a part where a lot of entrepreneurs can kind of narrow their focus by simplifying. What other benefits do you see coming out of a simpler brand message? The the primary benefit really is just having consumers understand who you are. I can't tell you, and granted, I may be more critical than others, uh, given the field of work I'm in, but how often I go to the grocery store, I'm shopping for my family, I'm buying, uh, let's say, crackers, and I'm looking at the box, and there are a million different messages on the box. I don't know if I'm supposed to take away this is low sugar, if this is gluten-free, is this healthy, is this fun, are my kids going to love it, is this going to taste awful, but it's really good for me. And so simplifying the core message really creates laser focus on ultimately what what do you want to tell the consumer that matters to you the most? If you could only say one thing, and this is even shorter than an elevator pitch, if you have five seconds or less to tell a consumer one thing, you want them to say, walk away, is like, oh, Karen is X. What is that X? And that is what the role of the core message is. And that the core message should evoke what matters to you and what should matter to them. Got it. And so you also mentioned here that one of the key focuses that you have is to make sure that you have a business that puts the consumer first. I think a lot of companies out there that might be listening or not also have this in mind that they want to, to focus on the consumer first. Well, in your opinion, what is key to making sure that you are putting consumers first? It goes back to understanding why an entrepreneur is pursuing a certain idea. What is the thing that made them come up with a concept and what, and it's, it's not only about the concept itself, but the journey to that got them there. And because that journey basically encompasses why a consumer would care. And so maybe if I took a different route, what I have seen a lot of entrepreneurs do is, and I think this is so natural, they have a passion, they start a, a business around it, and that passion is completely centered around something they experienced. 
whether it's a physical good or not. And then they realize, oh, there's some consumers that have the same pain point or passion about a topic and they care. And that's great. Really, the next question then becomes, well, you've got a certain subset of consumers or a certain set of consumers that care about what you care about. What happens from here? Do you just go after those consumers and continue to make them happy and keep them interested? Or do you go out and get more consumers? And that, I think, is really the challenge for entrepreneurs because I think that can feel like compromise um, from where they started. I think it could be both very exciting and fraught with fear because now you're saying, okay, I want to go after more. What does that do with my original idea? And so to stay true to your consumer, it really goes back to, I'm pursuing this other idea. How does this idea appeal to my original consumer? And if not, why would I pursue it? And does the trade-off of getting new consumers, does it, is it worthwhile and would it alienate the old consumers? So it's very theoretical, the example I'm describing, but it really, it, it comes down to understanding the passion uh, and the journey of the original idea and, and the goals around how far you want to take that idea. Makes sense. So bulletproof.com is a website. I'll leave you this last question. What, what has been the biggest lesson you learned last year that you want to make sure you apply this year? That new information may change your plans. If I've learned anything over my time at Bulletproof is that I was brought at the, to the company with a certain amount of, or a certain type of subject matter expertise and I have been pushed, and it's actually been my favorite part of the job to learn so much more than I ever anticipated that I would. But what I, in doing so, what I learned is that with new information and more a wider set of information while sitting on a leadership team means that what I thought to be true based on my expertise can actually be false. And what I am personally working on as my own personal development goal to apply that humility to understand that what I thought to be true and things that I have been forthright about may, I may have to take a step back and say, is that really true? And how do we evolve? And what does that mean for the business? And um, I think, you know, in the context of day to day, it's easy to want to be right. I am not immune. I, I like to be right a lot. But but it, what is better than being right is being successful. And and I think to be successful does take a, an ounce of humility to understand that um, being right doesn't actually get you there. Makes sense. I think great lesson for all. So again, thank you so much for your time, Karen. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.